to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together. Lord, we thank you that in your presence there's fullness of joy. So God, we speak that joy to invade every life, every circumstance in Jesus' name. We prophesy such a divine exchange to take place in the life of your people today. Lord, praise for heaviness, the garments of praise, God, to be dawned in, in spite of circumstance, beauty for ashes. We prophesy a divine exchange. And we, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to read your word, to learn from scripture. God, we ask that you speak to us this morning. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Let's have my picture up. How many of you all know who this is? It's not my grandfather, but... How many of you all know who this is? Show of hands, how many of you? Thank you, three of you. Uh, this man, his name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he's a German theologian, but also a uh, pastor, an activist, and a spy. Uh, Bonhoeffer was more, one of the most uh, significant theologians uh, in the last century, an activist, a theologian, and a pastor. He wrote two books that became uh, some of the most influential books in the last century, and those two books are uh, The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together. I'm sure many of you have uh, know uh, read the book, The Cause of Discipleship. It's quite a popular book, and uh, it's really influenced uh, not just uh, people in that day, but people today as well. And so Bonhoeffer wrote these two books when he was living in a seminary, seminary in Finkelwald. And uh, while he was in that seminary living there, he started an underground seminary for pastors who would take the gospel seriously. Man, that is like a great like, entry requirement. Like, are you taking gospel seriously, huh? You know, and he started an underground seminary for these pastors because um, he recognized that the German church uh, in many ways was uh, begin to become uh, influenced and, and corrupted by the rise of the Third Reich and the influence of the Nazi regime. And he sought to, uh, to train and equip followers of Jesus in that day to stand firm in their faith with the influence of culture in that day. Now, after his book Life Together came out, one of his friends came to visit him and he said to Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer, you know, take a chill pill. I'm paraphrasing, but he, he said, like, you're a bit too intense. Like, why don't you chill a bit? And Bonhoeffer looks at him and he said, like, follow me. And he took him uh, on a boat and they sailed across the river and they went on the top of the hill and Bonhoeffer shot him in the head. No, I'm just kidding. And <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> but Bonhoeffer took him across the boat. They went on the top of the hill. Uh, it's not too far from the, the seminary where Bonhoeffer was living. And Bonhoeffer stood with his friend there. And uh, over the hill, they could see uh, one of uh, Hitler's uh, camps where he was training uh, uh, soldiers to, uh, of course, fight uh, and uh, you know, participate in the Nazi regime. And, and as they looked over the camp, they could see soldiers being trained. They could see planes taking off. They could see soldiers marching out here and there. And, uh, and over on the other side of the hill, they could see a seminary where Bonhoeffer had this amazing work where he was training equipping pastors in this underground seminary to stand firm uh, in their fight for faith uh, in, in the middle of that current cultural climate. And almost in a moment of contrast, uh, Bonhoeffer looks at his friend and he, with one hand he points at his seminary and with one hand, with the other hand he points at Hitler's uh, camp and he says to his friend, this must be stronger than that. This must be stronger than that. Our work of discipleship in this seminary must be stronger than the work of discipleship that Hitler was bringing to the youth, to the nation. Yeah. Now, this is our hope, that the church would be stronger, more compelling, more beautiful, more powerful than the disintegrating culture that is all around us. Leslie Newbegin, he's a brilliant writer, he says this, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. Let me say that again. We must live in the kingdom of God in such a way, we must live such a lifestyle that provokes questions from onlookers, from your friends, to which the gospel is the answer. That's why over the pulpit, we endeavor to bring you teachings that brings relevancy to culture, gospel resilience, and reverence for God and His Word into your life. But not only that, for us followers of Jesus to submit to the process to which our desires, 
perspectives and inclinations are aligned to the way of Jesus. Now, we did a teaching on this a couple weeks ago called uh, Self-Denial in the Age of Self-Fulfillment. Highly encourage you to listen to that, uh, which I'll cover a lot about the flesh and the lure and the pull of culture. Now, what we are endeavoring to do here is to submit to such a process of transformation and renewal that our love for God and His kingdom would be stronger than our desire for sin, for control, for the things of this world, right? That's the goal of faith, where we submit to this process where our desires, our inclinations, our primal instincts, the things that come very naturally to us, these desires, these inclinations become over a long, arduous process conformed into the image of Christ, where we adopt His desires as our desires. We adopt His way over our way, where we lean on His timing over our own timing. Now, this process, this in-between of where we came from and where we hope to be, be, this spot is our battleground. Hear me when I say this. It is our battleground. Now, I use the word battleground on purpose because in many ways, this is a fight, a long, painful, arduous, up-the-hill kind of battle where we resist our flesh, the lure of the world, to overcome our disordered desire in preference of the way of Jesus. But also, this is a battleground because it is a literal battle between two very real entities. As we speak, there is a nefarious, evil, scheming force that seeks your demise, pain, and ultimately the destruction of your very soul. And the Bible calls this entity the devil. Welcome to church. How are you feeling? <laughs> Good. If this is your first time, this is not Andre's usual jam, but this is a jam that I bring out every two, three years or so. <coughs> there is evil in the world, but there is also good. There is evil in the world, but there is also good. Uh, this last week after church camp, I went with my life group to Penang uh, to uh, eat a lot, and uh, we were there for a couple of days. And uh, you know, after we were done with our six breakfast, yeah, we had, I think we had six six breakfasts. I think so. Yeah, we had six breakfasts, uh, and so after we were done with our six breakfasts, we uh, slowly, you know, uh, transited to a cafe, and this was a beautiful cafe. Uh, we, we got like a nice wooden table that managed to seat all of us, and above us was a nice skylight, and so there was like a little bit of sun, but not too much sun. You know, there was like, a bunch of natural lighting, but not too much natural lighting. It was all perfect, and then they had like really good like angmoor coffee, you know, which the kind of coffee I like, you know, espresso-based, not the salt kind. And so I had that, and then they had like a nice bagel, which was like off the menu. They were like, yo, bro, you look like someone who ordered from the secret menu, so let me tell you a secret menu item. So he gave me a secret menu item. It was like a poppy seed bagel with like kaya and butter on it. And so it was like bagel and kaya, like east meets west, like the beautiful like cosmic collision. And it was like just, ooh, glorious. It was just beautiful, right, beautiful. And so we're sitting there enjoying our company, enjoying this really good, beautiful food, this good, beautiful place, this good, beautiful moment. And, uh, and you know, we were hanging out over coffee and then the conversation began to, to shift and we began to talk about human trafficking, slavery, and the unjust treatment of domestic workers in Singapore. You know, really fun coffee conversations. <laughs> and so we were talking about like, all this injustice and it got so heavy and so deep and so like, oh my gosh, you know, there's so much pain and suffering in the world that we live in today. Now that right there is our current cultural moment, that in a world of beauty, good things and joy, there coexists a reality that is as true or even more true for some, one of evil, destruction, pain and suffering. There is good but there is also evil in this world that we live in. Now, I remember a scene where once I was preparing a sermon and it began to rain where I was preparing a sermon and then I looked out and I was like, man, this rain is so beautiful, so beautiful rain. Thank you, Lord, for the rain. And then I hear outside of my room like, bum, 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 and just scrambling and realized that my wife like put the laundry out and then she's like, ah, she was, there's good in the evil, but it's also evil. <laughs> Good for some, evil for others. <laughs> it's true, right? I'll take it further to say, okay, that, that, no, that statement, there's good in the world, but there's also evil. I'll take it further to say that we have a God 
but we also have an enemy. We have God, a loving Father, who is the creator of all things good, who has bestowed upon us immeasurable value and worth, but we also have an enemy in the devil, who the Bible tells us has come to kill, steal, and destroy. And today, we're going to pull back the seemingly uh, mysterious layer of the spiritual world. We're going to talk about the devil. We're going to talk about his tactics, and we're going to talk about how we overcome as followers of Jesus. My sermon title today is this, Fighting the Devil. Fighting the Devil. Notice the black and white slides. So serious. Fighting the Devil. Now, I once met a guy who uh, went to the gym uh, really often, and uh, he really built himself to a chunky guy, and... uh, and you know, once he was having a conversation with me about spiritual warfare, and you know, I was talking about like thoughts and all that kind of stuff, and uh, he uh, held on to a personal belief that you know the, the devil was going to come in a real physical form one day, and he was going to literally fight the devil. Um, I don't adopt that belief. Uh, I think in many ways our fight is not a physical one, but I will move on and explain further. Now, over the last few months, and especially in the last year or so, we talked a lot about suffering, have not, haven't we? Yes? I think like at least the last 50% of sermons have involved suffering to some measure, and, uh, or maybe this sermon moment is suffering for you. You're like, oh my gosh, you talk so long. We talked about, a lot about suffering and how it pro- produces character, right? Your character is being produced now, yes, as you listen to me and not fall asleep, and how we should not avoid it, but let it perfect and refine us. But the question is this, are there sufferings that we are not to simply accept? We talked a lot about how sufferings produces character, it perfects us, it refines our faith. But the question I'd like to propose to you today is that are there sufferings that you and I go through that we are not to simply accept? Is the enemy still at work today? Is he still relevant? We read in scripture, as I said earlier, that before every milestone victory, Israel faced some of their greatest oppositions. And in many ways, the opposition, the pushback, is indicative of the promise that is ahead. Now, as I was preparing this sermon, I sense in my spirit two things. Number one, some of you here, hear me when I say this, have been tormented or are being tormented as we speak. Now, I don't use that word lightly. Some of you are going through the most intense spiritual battle of your lives. You are being tormented as we speak. It may look like sleepless nights, constantly battling temptation, dysfunctional behaviors and habits like eating disorders. These I'd like to suggest to you, and this is a, a, a statement I'll make that I hope will bring you much solace and relief. This is not a test from God. This is not a byproduct of your bad decision. This is an attack from the devil. Some of you are going through circumstance today. It's not a byproduct of your decision. It's not a test from God. It is an attack from the pit of hell. There is an enemy that seeks your demise. Number two, the enemy, I feel, especially you know, in the last week, has schemes against you, me, and our church. And a sense coming up ahead for our church, a real season of warfare, of battling, of fighting. Now, before I lose you and you slowly gravitate outside into the lobby, it might not look like what you think. I see you. I see you. No, I can see. Sorry, lobby people. <laughs> no indictment there. <laughs> it's true, right? You know, uh, uh, that there's a real sense of warfare, of battling, of fighting that's going on. And I would like to suggest to you that it might not look like what you traditionally understand warfare to be. I have a quote, and this is my strange quote of the day from Sun Tzu. He says this, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. I cannot read that in Chinese. I've tried. It's, it's so, so hard. I felt so much warfare as I... But yeah, Sun Tzu Ping Fa. Know your enemy know yourself. And there's no better passage in the Bible to help us in our goal of knowing our enemy, knowing ourselves, than Jesus' most in-depth teaching of the devil. And we find ourselves in John chapter 8. Now, this is a lengthy passage of scripture. I'd like you to track with me, follow me as I take you on this journey. Verse 31 of chapter 8, it goes like this. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Hear that, right? If you hold to my teaching, you are 
really are my disciples, that discipleship is not just a form that you sign, a box that you check off, but it really is a way of life that encompasses, that uh, revolves around the teachings of Jesus lived out. Verse 32, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Only you can set me free. Verse 33, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have, been, have never been slaves of anyone. Now, this is an ironic statement, right? You know, you read the Old Testament, were they slaves of people? A bunch of times, deluded. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. Next slide. I'm telling you what I've seen in my father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did no such things. You are doing the works of your own father. Now, they retorted with this statement. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. Now, uh, in the Greek, uh, it does not really translate to illegitimate ch children. There was an innuendo there, a subtle innuendo there, that uh, really uh, was to poke fun at Jesus' parentage, uh, that he uh, was born out of wedlock. So a more accurate translation was, we are not bastards as you are. We are not bastards as you are. The only father we have is God himself. Next slide, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Strong, strong statement. The devil, the father of lies, there is no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks his native tongue, that of lies. He is incapable of speaking truth. Now, the notion of devil and spiritual warfare you know, especially in a church like ours, modern, hippy-dippy, educated, you no, know, real informed, has almost become a relic of the past. Do we agree on that? Some might even chalk it to outdated, superstitious thinking, or even something we explain away with advances in human understanding and psychology. But for Jesus, our Messiah, our Rabbi, He who we follow, for Jesus, there is a devil. There is a devil. In the Greek word, uh, the word devil is the word diabolos, which is where we get the word diabolical, which in the Greek is from a verbal root, which means to slander or to accuse. More accurately, the devil would translate to the slanderer or accuser. Devil is one of the many names used by Jesus and New Testament writers for a creature that we read about all throughout the library of scripture. Jesus calls him the Satan, the tempter, the evil one, the deceiver, the serpent of old. Notice all of these are titles, not names. Most of us hear Satan and think of it as the proper name in English. But in the Greek, the, the words used there is not just Satan, but it's the Satan, Hastan. And it will literally translate to the adversary or the accusers. Some scholars think that it's a subtle dig from Jesus and the New Testament writers that this creature didn't even deserve a name. They gave him titles like the accuser or the adversary or the slanderer. Three times Jesus calls this creature the ruler of this world. The word ruler is akon in Greek, and it is a political term to describe the highest position in government. To Jesus, this creature is the most powerful and influential creature in the world. Hear me when I say this. To Jesus, this creature, the devil, is akon, the most influential and powerful creature in the world. To Jesus, the devil isn't a myth nor a figment of the in, in imagination, something we brought over from an ancient age of superstitious nonsense, nor is he a red cartoon, that character with a pitchfork that sits on his shoulder. The devil, to Jesus, is an invisible but real intelligence that is the evil behind so much of the evil in our soul and in our society. 
I think of the line from the movie Usual Suspects, which says this, that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world he didn't exist. A.W. Tozer said that many Christians view this world as a playground rather than a battleground. To Jesus, second point, the devil's end goal is to murder, is to murder. In that verse we read earlier, it says this about the devil. He is a murderer from the beginning. To murder is to wipe out all life. The devil in the story of scripture is at war with God himself, with his vision for the flourishing of all humanity, life in all its fullness. The devil is at complete odds against God and you. Now, most of us think of this as some cosmic battle between the almighty God and devil. Let me tell you, God, devil is not the real fight. The devil doesn't stand a chance against God. The devil is not the opposite end of God. At best, it's the opposite end of Michael, the archangel. The devil is a created being. God is uncreated. And so there's no fair fight there. All of darkness on the earth exists as training ground for you and me. The fight is between us and the devil. As C.S. Lewis puts it, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. So much of our mind, our soul, our society feels like a war zone simply because it is. How many of you can relate to facing a temptation, a relationship strife, an insecurity stir up right after a moment of spiritual high? How many of you can relate to that? For the most part, Mondays are the worst day for me. I know Mondays are the worst day for a lot of you because you go back to work. But Mondays are an off day for me, um, which I really enjoy, which I practice Sabbath. But Mondays... Really, you know, it's, it's a, even though it's an off day from work, it's really a day of war for me. It's where all my insecurities come, come up. It's where I have doubts about my calling. It's where I review my sermon and feel lousy at times. It's, it's the day where I go to war in my thought life. I go to war honestly with temptation. Mondays are the worst day for me. It's, I face temptation on Mondays unlike any other. Because for me, what usually follows an amazing Sunday is a Monday where I fight to live out that which I've experienced. We have to know this simple elementary truth. We have an enemy, and we are all, whether you like it or not, in a war. As Bill Johnson puts it so brilliantly, if we don't run into the devil every now and then, we have to begin to wonder if we're walking in the same direction as him. I'll let that sit in. You'll probably get that tomorrow. Point three. For Jesus, the devil and his end goal to murder, to wipe out all life. His means is lies. I know the language is not sound. I know it, it, some of you English people might just get all jittery, but please go with it. Jesus calls the devil the father of lies. Hear, hear that. He calls him the father of lies, the origin point of deception itself. That is not, that is not how most of us understand spiritual warfare to be. Most of us think of spiritual warfare as something we did earlier. That's very valid, right? You know, we pray in tongues, we shakaraba, bind and the break, and the, and the loose, and the bind, and the break, and the line, and all that good stuff, right? There is a place and a time for that, but spiritual warfare to Jesus looks like battling lies. Sadly, much of what passes as a theology of spiritual warfare is at best conjectures or at worst superstitious nonsense. I remember once, you know, I was... Uh, in the U.S., and I had a, a person come up to me uh, for prayer, and he said, you know, like, uh, brother, call me brother, brother, uh, I am under such warfare. Like, the devil is, is attacking me. I was like, whoa, okay, you know, he must be doing some, like, major stuff, like, the devil is attacking me. I was like, wow, okay, it's a big deal. And so I answered, I was like, you know, how, how can I pray for you? Like, what's the attack you're facing? I would love to pray for you. He said, uh, brother, I went to Target, and I bought something, and my receipt came back, $6.66. The devil is attacking me. And, and you know, in my head, I was like, I was like, ah, good one. And so I began laughing. I was like, ah, it's a good one. Then three, four seconds later, I realized he was not laughing. He was dead serious. He was dead serious. He was like, I'm being attacked by the devil. You know, for, for some of us, you know, we get in the car on our way to church, and uh, right as we are approaching uh, Cecil Street, uh, we get into a major fight with our wife. You know, we say something 
off or something triggers and you get into a major fight and uh, on your way up parking the car park, you're just like, man, it's the devil. He's just like against me. He's just like, you know, trying to inhibit my praise and uh, distract me, you know, and, and you go like, it's the devil. Well, uh, I mean, it's safe to say, and I speak for myself that, you know, I can be, be I can, you know, I'm pretty confident I bring a jerk without any nudging from the devil, you know. <laughs> Just putting it out there. Sometimes, you know, yeah, yeah, sometimes it's spiritual warfare. But most of the time, I'll, I'll say, you're just being a jerk, and it's more you. <clears throat> I say all that not to tease some of you or dismiss some of your real, very real experiences. No, I believe that some of these experiences are very real. But that is, for the most part, what we think of spiritual warfare. Christian paranoia, irrational fear, blowing up everyday occurrences, etc. Or... We go to the extreme end, we just write it off. Or we limit it to something like an exorcism, an oppression, a disaster, a weird illness that comes out of nowhere. All of these are very real. And I'm sure all of us have seen or heard some of this. But catch this and hear me when I say this. In Jesus' most in-depth teaching on the devil, he does not mention any of that. In that story, there's no demons there's no disaster, no illness. In Jesus' most in-depth teaching on the devil, none of that was mentioned. Instead, it is about an intellectual debate with the thought leaders of that day over truth and lies. When we think of fighting the devil, we often think exorcism, illness that comes at a strange time, bizarre event that wrecks havoc in our life, and for good reason. But when Jesus teaches on the devil, he mostly talks about truth and lies. I'm not saying that demonic oppression, untimely deaths, disease, and disasters aren't part of the devil's ammo. We find it all in all parts of scripture, right? We do. We see it in various parts. But what I'm saying is that his real desired goal, the devil's real desired goal, is to see into you a lie through the circumstance, through the oppression. The circumstance is a means to get you to believe in a lie about yourself, about God. That is his real end goal, to get you to believe a lie. Because the circumstance doesn't keep you bound, the lie does. Thank you. Thank you so much. About whether God truly has good intentions for you, about whether he really is your defender, about whether breakthrough really happened, you fill in the blanks. Isn't it so poignant? that the kids who had the massive breakthrough who we prophesied life over are facing some of the toughest situations today. Ultimately, it isn't the circumstance that keeps us bound, it's the ideology that we develop. You know, I've shared pretty openly about my health journey and all of that, and most of you have been praying for me. Thank you so much for that, and uh, really making good progress in, in that area. Now, you know, uh, for most people, when they come and pray for me, they're like, man, we just pray against the spiritual warfare. And I do admit that a large chunk of that is real spiritual. But many of, uh, but no, a, a good half or more of that, you know, really is a byproduct of my lifestyle choices. You know, I, I think that I developed the illness because of really poor decisions that I've made in life, right? Sedentary lifestyle, eating at wrong timings, all that good stuff. Sorry, all that bad stuff. <laughs> That was Penang for me, basically. But anyway. <laughs> but, you know, I, I have to admit that there are elements where I, was, I literally went to war with the devil. You know, um, after the diagnosis, um, first few thoughts were like, you know, thoughts of suicide, thoughts of alienation, thoughts of quitting my job. You know, I had lies that, that, that seemed to come at me. You know, it's a, it's a deluge of emotions and onslaught from the devil. I remember the first day after I had the diagnosis, I thought of like quitting my job. I was like, I've disqualified myself from my pastoral ministry. I thought of killing myself. I thought of myself as a burden to Amy. I thought of myself as someone who wouldn't live very long. I wouldn't have kids. And all these lies came left, right, center. I don't think these lies were a byproduct of uh, my decision, a byproduct of sin or a byproduct of God bringing the testing to me. It's a real spiritual demonic experience. That is the devil's ammo. Lies, mistruth, and deception. Now, deception includes all of our perceptions, interpretations of reality that are incomplete or distorted in some way. Deception takes a great many forms, and we have many words to describe its various dimensions. The following is, is a slide of some of the deceptions that we face in life. 
outright lies, mistaken goals, self-deception, confusion, doubt, unbelief, misinformation, false assumptions, false dichotomies, misinterpretations of our experience, distorted images of God, distorted images of self, and the last one, false ideas of what brings happiness and satisfaction. I'll add the word in, false ideas of what brings true and lasting happiness and satisfaction. Lies about who you are, lies about God, lies about lasting happiness and satisfaction. That is the M.O. of the devil. John Mark Comer, one of my favorite authors and speakers, sums up the devil's strategy for our demise with this quote. He says this, the devil's strategy, oh no, next slide, is deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. I'll repeat that line, deceitful ideas, lies, that play to disordered desires, our flesh, that are normalized in a sinful society, or what the Bible would call the world. Now, that is a lot to unpack. If I were to unpack that, you will eat lunch at one o'clock. And so I'll spare you that suffering and just focus on one point, deceitful ideas, deceitful ideas, lies. Are you following me? Are you tracking me? Now, you know... Uh, I initially planned for this talk to be about an hour, but you know, we had the point of intercession earlier. And so if I can't get through the content, stay tuned for part two. But I might leave you on a cliffhanger and we just like close in Jesus' name. So grace and all that stuff. Thank you. Okay. When Satan first decided to derail and destroy the human race, he did not come to Adam and Eve with some trivial temptation, trying to get them to do some bad thing in order to disobey God. Instead, he coughed up two of the most bold-faced lies ever crafted for evil intentions, a distorted image of God and a distorted image of human self. You can be like God, and God is not to be trusted. Thus, the enemy played his best hand. In response, Adam and Eve doubted God, desired what was unholy, and acted out of that desire. Now, this is a cycle that we face, some of us, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. We believe a lie. We doubt God. We desire something which is unholy, and then we act out that desire. All of this was possible, even though Adam and Eve knew God, talked with him daily, and lived in a world completely free of human evil. They had none of the previous experiences with sin, fallen nature, and unmet needs that now characterize our world, and yet they sin. How does this compare with the world we live in today, with where we are? We now live in an entire culture of deceit, where truth is made to stand on its head, hashtag fake news, evil is called good, and those who speak for truth is hated. I like one writer's summary of our current cultural climate. He says this. Let's have the slide up. Uh, universal one. Our world today, what was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned. And those who refuse to celebrate are now condemned. Now, this is such an apt summary of our current cultural climate, the world in which we live in today. The Bible speaks endlessly of perils of being led astray, believing false teachers, and being blinded to the truth. These warnings today have become synonymous with old-school, old-style, fundamentalist teachings. However, from nearly every vantage point, we see that deception is still the primary way the devil attacks the church, you and me. John Mark Comer has this to say, <clears throat> The modern secular world lost off the idea of the devil as a relic from the pre-scientific age. Now we know better is the mantra of our progressive world. And yet secular theories that attempt to explain evil fall flat of the human experience. For Jesus, there is an invisible but intelligent evil at work in the world. But his primary strategy isn't what most of us expect. It's lies. Fighting the devil is first and foremost about the war to believe truth over lies. The primary fight against the devil is the fight to believe truth over lies. That is spiritual warfare. That is the warfare we are called to engage in, to believe truth over lies. And our belief that's driving this series, that this series of talks that we're doing is this, that it is by the spirit and truth that we are transformed into the image of Christ and set free to live in line with all that is good in the world. And it is also by isolation and lies that we are deformed into the image of Satan and enslaved in a life of evil and death. By truth, you are set free. But by lies, you are bound and trapped 
and enslaved in a vicious cycle. One of the most important revelations embedded within the page of scripture is the single fact that there exists a direct correlation between bondage and deception and on one hand and between freedom and truth on the other. When Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life, he was making a statement not only about himself, but also about the relationship between truth and the life that he made possible. We cannot have life apart from truth. We cannot have life apart from truth. We grossly underestimate the power of deception, both in regard to the extent of its presence in our lives and in regard to its effects on our heart and mind. Lies keep us bound. Now we were talking about this whole truth and lies kind of thing. It leads us to a real philosophical question. What is truth? What is truth? Now, I don't have a background in philosophy. I don't have a background in all this kind of stuff, but uh, I try my best. I, I do read a ton, and you know, I put in a bunch of different books, articles, podcasts, prayed a ton, talked to a bunch of people, and at best, this is my one-line definition of what truth is. Truth is what reality is or that which corresponds to reality. Reality is what we run into when we are wrong. Case in point, suppose you go up to our roof, roof later and you sing the R. Kelly song, I believe I can fly. Woo! I believe I can touch the sky. You know, and you believe, you believe, you believe, you believe. And then you jump off the roof. The pavement to which you were hit some seconds later is reality. Reality is what you run into when you embrace false truth. Truth is what reality is or that which corresponds to reality. Reality is what we run into when we are wrong. And I know this question of truth is a philosophical question that we are trying to understand and, and answer, but we are also trying to do so with a non-secular, biblical view of what truth is. And you know, I thought to myself, if only there was someone who was trained in philosophy and theology to better shed light on what truth and reality is, and his name is Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard writes, my man, he says, we must keep in mind that truth and reality are not in themselves pluralistic. If your gas tank is empty, social acceptance of your right to believe that it is full will not help you get your car to run. Everything is just exactly what it is. And you can develop cultural traditions, vote, wish, or whatever you please, and that will not change a thing. Last line, truth and reality do not adapt to us. It is up to us to adapt to them. My man, Dallas Willard, bring it. Case in point, when we sin, okay, we buy into the lie that we will find lasting, true satisfaction and happiness on the other side. But all of us here have sinned before, yes? Yes? Okay, two of us. Brilliant. All you saints, you should ascend to heaven already. But for all of us who are a work in progress, who sin, know that on the other side, we do not find true lasting satisfaction and happiness. We find shame, disappointment, and at times, the feelings of disconnection to people and to God. That's what Paul writes about in Galatians 6, that whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Jesus said it best, the wages of sin is death. I love this old-timey quote from an old-timey preacher. He says this, sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. It is forbidden because it is bad. When we circumvent God's ways and truth, we will soon be met with a reality that is not part of God's ideal for us. Here's the thing. None of us sin out of duty. Right? You know, I don't go home later at, at 7 p.m. like, man, 7 p.m., feeling tired. It's a long day in church, but I just have to sin. It's the right thing to do. You know, I, just, I, just, I just have to last. You know, I, I calendar it. I need to like, last, you know. None of us sin out of duty, out of obligation, yes? We sin because we believe in the lie. We buy into the lie that that sin was what's going to bring us true happiness, lasting satisfaction. We sin because we believe in the lie. We think that at that point, it is the most moral thing to do. We do not sin because we know it to be wrong. We sin because we know it to be right. It is a lie. I'm making sense to you. Now I'm just going to fast forward down. I'd like to go back to that earlier line. Our primary fight is a fight of believing truth over lies. Truth 
over lies. And what you believe is so powerful. What you believe can change the world or destroy your reality, destroy your soul. Nazi Germany, because it's still so fresh on our minds from our earlier story, we forget that prior to two world wars, it was Germany that was the leader of Western civilization. Not the US, not England. Germany was the apex of Western civilization by pretty much any matrix system. Art, architecture, music. How many famous composers are German? Pretty much all of them. Maybe a few Italians. Theology is the birthplace of Reformation. So many great theologians. Science, technology, education, urban planning. They were the apex of Western civilization. Fast forward, World War II, World War I, and the entire society was destroyed from the inside. By what? By ideas. By deceptive ideas about race, ethnicity, nationhood that played into disordered desires for power, for control, for honor, for pride that were normalized by a sinful society. And that strategy dates back to World War II. It dates back to the Old Testament. It dates back to Eden. And it's still at work. It still is being perpetrated. It's still being played out today. Deceitful ideas that play into disordered desires that are normalized by a sinful society. That is his strategy. The Bible gives us a couple of verses in our war and fight against the devil. Let's have those verses out. Are you still with me? Thank you. Second Corinthians verse chapter 10, he says this, we are destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now this is a verse about spiritual warfare. Some of you might think, man, I need to literally kick the devil in the swimsuit area, but no. You take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is spiritual warfare. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. The word renewing of the mind is the word metanoa. And metanoa is the word used to describe repentance all through the New Testament. The great travesty in the modern church today is that we think repentance is simply about sorrow, feeling sorry, confessing to a spiritual figure. It is more emotionally driven rather than a long methodological process. We measure repentance based on the sorrow of a moment rather than commitment to long-term transformation. As I close today, you know, I'd like to propose three ways that we can uh, engage in repentance, in changing the way we think, in replacing lies with truth. Okay, can I do that? Just three quick simple points and I'll bring this plane to a landing. First thing I think we need to uh, rediscover and learn to do better is to memorize and recite scripture. To memorize and recite scripture. Now this is uh, something that we think we graduate out of when we move out of Sunday school. Huh? Memorizing scripture is a Sunday school thing and we think as grown-up adults, we don't have to do that anymore. In Luke 4, we find Jesus being led out into the desert by the Holy Spirit after having fasted for 40 days. While in the wilderness, Jesus encountered the devil who tempted him three times. And each time Jesus responded to the devil's temptation by quoting scripture. Dallas Willard uh, has this to say about biblical memorization. He says this, Bible memorization is absolutely fundamental to spiritual formation. If I had to choose between all the disciplines in the spiritual life, I would choose Bible memorization because it is a fundamental way of filling our minds with what it needs. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. That's where you need it. How does it get in your mouth? Memorization. John Mark Comer has this to say. He says, in memorizing scripture, we are not only following the commands found within them, but employing the deeper reality and power of those words to combat the lies of the enemy about ourselves, culture, God, political climates, and who our real enemy is. Now hear me when I say this. If you don't have a devil in your story, you will make devils out of other people. If you don't have demons in your story, you will demonize other people. You will put the blame on people around you for the circumstance that you experience. If you don't know who your enemy is, who your real enemy is, you'll make enemies out of other people. That is why relationships are fractured in the church because we make enemies of people who aren't. When we harness God's truth in our minds through memorization, rumination, it becomes a realized and embodied weapon against the enemy's schemes. So just like our rabbi, when we memorize the scriptures and even speak them out loud, we are participating in one of the greatest forms of spiritual warfare. 
Dr. Howard Hendricks of Dallas Seminary once made this statement, and I paraphrase that if it were up to him, every student graduating from the seminary would be required to learn 1,000 verses word perfect before they graduated. How many of you, are you glad that you went to a different seminary? Man, 1,000 verses word perfect hall before they graduated. That's crazy. Scripture, memorization, and recitation. The next thing that I, I think we should learn to do better is to, in view of lies and this whole conflict of lies and truth, to look to Jesus and his way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Notice he does not say, I have truth bombs on offer, bro. He says that <laughs> I am truth. My ways, my words, my will is truth. He is truth personified. Earlier followers of Jesus were not known as Christians, but followers of the way. The way comes from the Greek word hodos, which is a word picture to mean path, journey, or a way of life. We follow in his way. When the world tells you to go another way, you say, no way, Yahweh. We know something to be a lie if it directly contradicts with Jesus' way. Hear me. We know, this to, we know it is a lie when it directly contradicts with Jesus' way. If you are considering backbiting, backstabbing, gossiping, manipulating, orchestrating some evil plot in order to get ahead in life, and you wonder, if this, is this a lie that I'm believing? Look to Jesus and his way, look to scripture, and there will be no doubt. And there will be nothing left to wonder. Now, the, the last one which I'm really excited about is this, to do an idea audit. An idea audit. And all of auditors... Love language. <laughs> to do an idea audit. A.W. Tozer once wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Brilliant line. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That is why in the book of Genesis, when the snake came to Adam and Eve, he did not come to them with a weapon or an army. He came to them with an idea. The ideas that we believe about God, ourselves, and the good life shape who we become and how we live. In the world of TED Talks, podcasts, billboards, and blog posts, we are presented literally with, a hundred, with hundreds upon hundreds of ideas each and every single day. The scary part about this is that every idea we digest does something to us. If we want to follow Jesus in our time and place, we will have to find a way to guard and guide our thought life. Or in the words of Paul, take every thought captive. The challenge for disciples of Jesus is to adopt a practice of counter-formation. Whether you like it or not, you are unintentionally being spiritually formed as we speak. You are either being formed by scripture, by teaching, by practice, or you are being formed by the ideas of the world that are thrown at you on a daily basis. And in many ways, the journey of followers of Jesus is a life of counterformation to overturn the voice of the world, to overturn popular opinion, to overturn cultural assumptions about what good and pleasing and perfect is. And we do so by doing an idea audit to see if the things we believe about God, about the good life, about ourselves measure up with scripture and the overall narrative of the Bible. And here's an exercise that I'd like us to do in, in life group this week to do an idea audit. I have this little form done, done up. You probably cannot see it, but let me read it to you. Okay, and so, you know, you, you, you start off with asking what is the lie that I'm believing about God, myself, or the good life. And then you follow it up with what's the truth about Jesus, uh, the truth that Jesus is calling me to believe. Second part is what is the desi disordered desire of my flesh behind that lie. And then you follow up with what's the reordered desire of the Spirit for my life. Last part is how is this lie normalized in our sinful society? And six, what Jesus, what's Jesus' kingdom vision for a new normal? Now, you might not be able to read this, this thing, but um, rest assured that this uh, page, along with uh, notes and instructions, will uh, be filtered out to our life group leaders. And I would like us to do an idea audit, either in your own time or uh, in your life groups. Okay? Closing. In closing, lies or unreality that come in the form of deceptive ideas are the devil's primary method of enslaving human beings and human society in his vicious cycle. That is why Jesus came as a teacher, as a teller of truth, calling for followers of Jesus to rethink reality and believe and trust in his vision 
for the kingdom and what it ought to be. He came as a teacher, not a general of an army, calling for followers to pick up their cross and adopt his way, not for soldiers to pick up their swords. If we look at the Old Testament prophecies, so many of them portray the coming Messiah as a man of war, as a man of war. And that was people's expectation of the Messiah, that he would literally raise an army and take on the Roman Empire. But here's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount teaching on nonviolence. Jesus radically redefines that war. For Jesus, the real enemy isn't Rome, isn't the religious leaders. It is the devil and the lies that he tells. You want to know what is the most quoted Old Testament prophecy by the New Testament writers? It is Psalms 110. Read it in your own time. But Psalms 110 has a line that basically says that Jesus would wipe the blood of his enemies with his feet. Violent. War. He was, in fact, a warrior, but he redefines the battleground for you, for me. For us, the battleground is the mind, and the war is against forces that are unseen. Paul sums it up so brilliantly in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And Jesus' weapon wasn't a sword, a shield, or a spear. It was truth. And his means wasn't courage on a battlefield. It was self-sacrificial love on the cross. How are you doing? I'd like to end off with a, a, a hymn that Martin Luther wrote. I know Martin Luther has got some flag over the last few weeks. We've quoted some not-so-pleasant Martin Luther quotes, but here's a good one. Martin Luther quote, he writes this hymn, A Mighty Fortress. He says this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Now, one of the greatest uh, 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 pictures we see in Scripture is that uh, God is, is light and uh, He shines light in the midst of darkness. And one of the great realities that we can see played out in our life is the reality that light cannot coexist with darkness. Or better put, darkness cannot stand in the presence of light. And in the midst of all the lies that you face, some on a daily basis, the onslaught of the enemy, one little word shall fell him. All it takes is the truth about who you are, about who God is, about the truth about your circumstance, the things that you're going through. One little word, this little light of mine, when it shines, darkness is dispelled. It's the truth shall set you free. It is by lies that you are bound, so it shall be by truth that you are liberated. Can we stand?